last week we started our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and the series is titled, The Hope of a New Beginning. One of the points from the sermon last week was that the start of a new, begin- the start of a new beginning requires dependence on the Lord, right? If, if the Lord is going to start something new in our lives as believers and in our church as a body of believers, if that's going to happen, it's going to have to be through the dependence on the Lord. It's only going to come through God working. Now, I did tell you one of the beautiful things about the story of Nehemiah is that it pairs really beautifully the sovereignty and the and the good the goodness of God the control of God all over all circumstances with human responsibility with us taking action trusting and depending on the Lord to accomplish what it is that he desires our text today continues to show us the faithfulness of God working to renew and rebuild and refresh his people into what he has for them. It's God working to accomplish these things through his people and in his people. Turn with me to Nehemiah 2. Our sermon is titled, The Gracious Hand of God. The Gracious Hand of God. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 20. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but the sadness, but sadness of the heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. And replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why shouldn't I be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor with you, Send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region, west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of, God, of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave, the, gave them the king's letters, The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate, towards the serpent's well and the dung gate, 
and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then, heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, you are good and faithful, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we have promises in your word of your constant care over us. God, we pray that uh, we will be encouraged by the truths of your word and what it reveals to us about you and your, your care and your work in us and through us, uh, and that we will be challenged for the work that you have for us, Lord. Work now to stir our hearts and our minds, help us believe and help us respond accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we work through this book of Nehemiah, uh, we do want to keep in mind that this story is not just a story that's here to challenge us and encourage us. Uh, It should do that. And it, for me alone, just in preparation over the last couple of weeks, has challenged me and encouraged me greatly. But if all we do is walk away from this book just feeling like, okay, I'm going to try a little bit harder, or I feel encouraged to try to do something a little bit better now, if that's all we do, we're missing so much. It's really important for us to keep in context of where this is in the story, of what it's a part of, because it's a part of God's redemptive story, right? It is a part of him fulfilling his promises to his people and using his people to bring about and accomplish the things that he wants to do in order to bring about redemption. The people of God were scattered, and God was keeping his promises to bring them back together in this land and is going to rebuild them and start to recreate them into the people that he desires them to be in order to bring the Savior of the world. Right? We mentioned this last week. This is about 450 years before the birth of Jesus. And so God is working these hundreds of years before Jesus comes to prepare the way for that. So Nehemiah is part of the redemptive story. 
And not only is it part of the redemptive story, Nehemiah also points us to the Savior. Nehemiah is pointing us to one that is greater than him that is going to come. Kathy Keller has a great message on uh, Nehemiah 1 and 2 from the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference uh, several years ago. Wonderful message, but she does a great job of bringing out how Nehemiah is pointing us to the greater one, pointing us to Jesus. And she says this, Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, the one who left the heavenly palace the right hand of the king, safety and glory to come into a world, he joined the blue-collar labor force as a carpenter, a builder. He came not just at the risk of death, but with the certainty of it. I love that, just reminding us that Nehemiah is pointing us to someone greater because the gospel story teaches us That the Son of God left the palaces of heaven, left the safety, left the just perfection of being at the the right hand of God and steps into this broken world that is in shambles in order to rebuild it. In order to rebuild God's people back into what he desired them to be. In order to accomplish the redemptive purposes And he did that all with the intent of knowing this will take my life. I'm giving up my life for this. And so it's important for us to keep this truth, to keep this connection to the gospel as we work our way through Nehemiah of seeing this story in the place of God's redemptive story. Because if we do that, that will help keep us grounded with the work that God still has for us as individuals, with the work that God still has for Dogwood Church. Because not only did Jesus step into the shambles of this world to provide salvation and rescue for us, he then commissioned his people into the work that he has for for them so that the redemptive purposes can continue on, right? And so that's let's keep that in mind as we work our way through this. Now, as far as Nehemiah 2, here's our central truth. The hand of God sustains us for the work that he gives us. The hand of God sustains us for the work that he gives us. This is vital for us to know for several reasons. It's vital for us to know and believe and to live because if we don't, when we start to see some successes in the things that we're going to do, when we start to see some successes in things that are happening, we could easily start to be puffed up. Look what I accomplished. Look what we did. And we can turn it in ourselves. But if we keep this central truth that this is the hand of God at work in us and through us, it will keep us grounded to where we can fight that pride. The other way that this truth helps us is it can battle hopelessness, right? When we take on the work that the Lord has for us, Oftentimes we can look around and say, I don't see how it's going to happen. 
I don't have enough to give. You know, I just I don't know that I can accomplish anything. I don't know if what I have to offer can help. I don't know if we have enough people here to do what it is the Lord wants. I don't know if we have enough resources. But if we keep this truth in mind that the hand of God will sustain us and does sustain us for the work that he has given us, that will help us not feel hopeless for the task. It will strengthen us with hope to pursue whatever it is that he's calling us to do. Now, as we work our way through chapter 2, let's think about and kind of recognize the different ways that the gracious hand of God is, is working in Nehemiah and with the people of God in order to bring about the things that he is trying to accomplish or that he is accomplishing. And the first thing is this. The gracious hand of God provides for the work that he gives us. The gracious hand of God provides for the work that he gives us. We're going to look at these first 10 verses. Mickey, as I go through this, I'm going to just kind of pause and point out some things through these 10 verses, but it's still in the same order. So I want us to look at the different ways that Nehemiah is provide. I'm sorry, that God is providing for Nehemiah and for the people of God in these, in these first verses. Okay, the gracious hand of God provides for the work that he gives us. Verse 1, during the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. The first thing I want us to see in this section, and it ties back to, to last month, we've already seen this. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, is how chapter 1 ended. And so the first thing that we see that the gracious hand of God has provided is he has provided Nehemiah with a strategic position to be able to do something. He has put him in a place, a specific strategic place, where he will be able to do something about the work that needs to be done. He is the trusted uh, servant of the king, one of the most trusted servants of the king. And so he is able to and is going to be able to do something if, other than separate from what he might would have been able to do if he was in any other position. He's strategically placed there. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was on him to have him in the place that he needed him to be. Verses 2 through 4. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So the second thing that we see that God, the gracious hand of God has done for Nehemiah and for his people is he gives Nehemiah wisdom with how to reply to the king. Being a servant to the king, when the king is in a celebration, right? That's what they're doing. They're at a feast. They're at a celebration. And to be there and to be sad could be an insult to the king. It could be an indicator that you're plotting something against the king. 
Nehemiah is going to be granted wisdom with how to petition the king with, about this need. So we see first, he, he's afraid, but he knows, he needs to recognize that he, is, he has nothing against the king. That's not why he looks sad. And so he says, may the king live forever. I, I, I seek your goodwill, but here's why I'm sad. Here's why I'm heartbroken. And there's wisdom in this reply. He doesn't say Jerusalem has been destroyed. He doesn't start with my homeland is, is, is messed up and I'm really upset about it. Because a king 900 miles away ruling over those people likely isn't going to care just that a, a city has been destroyed. And Nehemiah has wisdom to be able to make a connection that will resonate with the king He says, the place where my ancestors are buried is destroyed. And that's really significant to the people of this time and in this culture. Because the care of your ancestors and the care of the burial grounds of your ancestors was highly regarded for this culture of people. And so Nehemiah has wisdom to be able to resonate with the king. Why does he have the wisdom to do that? Because the gracious hand of God was on him. And the king says, well, what is it that you want? What are you asking here? And so verses 5 through 8. I love the end of 4. I don't know if I... Did I stop? I think I stopped. The end of 4 says, so I prayed to the God of the heavens. He's been praying. We talked about it last week. He's been praying for four months. And he gets the opportunity to speak. What's your request? And he prays to God again. It's not one of those long extended prayers. It's a, okay, God, it's time. I need you to do something right now because I'm about to make the request. Do something, Lord. And then he speaks. I answered the king. If it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, that I, might, that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. So the next thing that the gracious hand of God gave to Nehemiah and to the people of God was he gave them a plan to accomplish this task. He asked, like, send me so that I can do the work. But not only was Nehemiah praying for four months, it's clear that Nehemiah was thinking through everything that it would take. Because when the king asked him about it, how long are you going to be? He'd already calculated it. It's going to take at least this much time. It figured out. And we're talking probably a year and a half to two years at least. He's asking for a break from his task to be be able to go. Because it's a four-month journey there. They have to rebuild the walls. And then a four-month journey back. 
And he had planned out in detail all that it was going to take. Not only does he need the time off from the job, but he also is going to need some protection. Would you grant me letters from you that as I am passing through the lands west of the Euphrates, that those people will know that I, am, I have permission to come through to make it to Jerusalem. He had also had a plan for the resources he's going to need. He does not have the resources it's going to take to rebuild. And so he asked the king, and would you also grant a letter to your the person who's in charge of your forest, your timber, who would then give me the resources I need to rebuild the walls and the houses and the gates. Would you grant that? He has a plan for it all. Why does Nehemiah have that plan? Because he says, and why does he, he have success in this plan? Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah doesn't think of this like, man, I really did a great job of selling that to the king. He doesn't think, man, the king is such a great guy to give me two years off. He says, all of this happened because God was at work. The gracious hand of God was controlling things and working things. As I strove to fulfill what it is God had put into my heart, the gracious hand of God was at work to make it happen. And then the last thing from these ten verses is we see the gracious hand of God giving protections beyond Nehemiah's request. Things that Nehemiah didn't even know he was going to need. I went to the governors of the region. This is verse 9. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. And so here, the gracious hand of God is providing protection beyond what even Nehemiah knew he needed. We have the hints of opposition. We're going to get back to that at the end of this chapter, and we're going to see it even more later on in the book, that there is opposition here. But God was already aware of that. He knows all things. And God granted Nehemiah not just letters from the king that says it's okay for him to go and do this work. He granted him soldiers to go with him to protect him. And not just any soldiers. He granted him officers in both the infantry and the cavalry. Soldiers who have authority. God was at work in all of this in order to use Nehemiah for the task that he had for him. Strategic position, wisdom, a plan, and protections beyond what he even knew that he was going to need. The gracious hand of God provides for the work that he gives us. He did that for Nehemiah. He does that throughout Scripture over and over again, and he still does that today. If God calls us to a work, we can be certain that he is going to give us exactly what we need to accomplish the task. We don't have to be worried about how are we going to do this. We're going to do it by the gracious hand of God. George Mueller, some of you know Mueller's story. Many of you probably do. George Mueller, uh, troubled by the orphan crisis that was going on in England during his life and said, 
I feel like God wants me to do something about this. And so Mueller started an orphanage and it just grew. There were several locations. They cared for countless children. But Mueller, one of the things that was unique about Mueller and his orphanage was that he wanted to be able to say, God miraculously cared for us throughout this whole thing. And so he was determined to never go out to places and people around uh, London and then around England and ask for support. He said, I want this entire thing to be done by praying and trusting that the Lord is going to provide because I believe the Lord is going to provide. And so his entire ministry of orphan care was one that was when there was a need, they prayed and they trusted for the Lord to provide. And he has a book over and over that details the ways that God provided miraculously as they prayed for their needs. It's called Answers to Prayer, if any of you are interested in that. It's just kind of a journal of the, the things that they prayed for uh, at the orphanage. And Mueller had a, an interesting take on why he was doing this. Yes, he wanted to be able to provide and care for the orphans, but he had a greater purpose in, in functioning this way because he said, I wanted the care to come through prayer and faith. And the reason he wanted the care for the orphans to come through prayer and faith was this, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayers still. That God is faithful still and hears prayers still. And when he wrote that in his journal, he wrote in all caps, large words, faithful still, hears prayers still. He wanted the orphanage to be a demonstration. God will answer our prayers. God will provide for the work that he has for us. He did that believing God is a God who provides. He will take care of this. He always is faithful to provide for the task that he has for his people. So, church, as we set our hearts on the work that God has for us, let's trust the Lord with whatever it is that he's calling us to do. Let's trust the Lord to provide everything that we need because we could look around and say, I don't know if we have enough people. I don't know if we have enough money. I don't know if we have enough resources to do the work that the Lord has for us. But if the gracious hand of God is upon us to do a work, we can be certain that he is going to provide whatever it is that we need to be able to accomplish the task that he's calling us to. Let's trust him to provide. The second thing from this text is this. The gracious hand of God unites us around his work. The gracious hand of God unites us around his work. This is an important one for us. They all are, of course. Uh, unity, though, is an important thing. Verses 11 through 18 address this. I'm going to look at 11 through 15 first, and then we'll kind of get into the, the unity uh, that comes in 16 through 18. 
Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 11, After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate towards the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by the way of the valley and I inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. And so Nehemiah takes three days after months of journey to get there, which doesn't tell us anything about that journey, but we know based off the travel and the time frame uh, of the day that it would have taken him three to four months to get there. So after months of travel, he takes three days to kind of recoup, three days to rest. And then before he goes to the people and says, hey, we've got to do something, he pauses to get a real first-hand, full assessment of what the need is. Before he's going to go and say, we need to do something about this, he gets an assessment of how bad things actually are. And so they go out under the cover of night, he and a few others, and travel around Jerusalem, taking in the scenes of the broken down walls and the burned down gates. Places where it got to where his, his animal couldn't even travel because the rubble was covering the trails. And so after that, after getting a full assessment of what the need is, he's going to go to the people and call for them to unite around the work that needs to be done. And so that's what we get to in verse 16 through 18. Verse 16 The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of them who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Unity was necessary. If they were going to accomplish this task of rebuilding and bringing about the restoration that was needed for the city, they were going to have to unite together for the work that had to be done. And so Nehemiah, look at how he speaks to them. He doesn't examine the walls that he wasn't there for all the stuff that had happened. He doesn't go examine them and then say, man, why'd y'all let this happen to this place? Like, did none of y'all care about the way things are? He speaks to them by uniting with them. Right? He says to them, You see the trouble that we are in. He connects to them. We are in trouble because Jerusalem's walls and gates have been destroyed. 
we are a disgrace. Our place is a disgrace because this has happened to us. And then he calls for them to unite together for the task at hand. Let us rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Let us. We're in this together. Join with me. Let's all of us get together and work on this. Right? He speaks to them by uniting to them, connecting with them. And he explains how bad things are and then calls them to action. Unity was necessary. And I love that's what happens here. Is as they hear Nehemiah's request, they're stirred to action. And Nehemiah explains to them, he gives a testimony, like we're not alone in this because the gracious hand of God is on us. The gracious hand of God has worked to bring all of this in order to prepare us for the task at hand. And here's what the king said when I explained to him, and here's how we can move forward. And so with that testimony, it unites the people they look around and say, then let's do it, right? Let's, let's rebuild the walls. We can do something about this together. We can unite. And unity is what was necessary if they were going to accomplish the task. And we're not great about that at times. I'm not saying just us. In churches in general, oftentimes unity is something that is lacking and it's not the way the Lord desires, right? What, what we often do in churches is we team up. We team up for uh, get enough people on your side so that you can keep things the way that you want them to be or that you can get way, things the way that you want them to be. And we, we divide up that way. The problem with that is we oftentimes, when, we're, when we are divided up on teams, trying to get to our preferences, we aren't actually about the work of the Lord. What we're about is preferences in church. We can't be about preferences. It will destroy. It will frustrate. It will stop the work that the Lord wants to do in us. If we are going to be divided, we have to unite together around the task that the Lord has for us. And God wants that for us. God and his gracious hand upon us will accomplish that for us. If we will commit to his work and what it is that he desires for us, the Lord will unite us together around the mission that he has for us. Jesus prayed for unity for us. In his final night, before he dies on a cross the next day, he prays that all of the people who come to faith in him will be united as one. Paul desired that, wrote about that often in his letters of the people needing to be united. One of those cases we see in Philippians his desire, which of course is the Holy Spirit's desire for the church and for all churches. But in Philippians 1, verse 27, just one thing, 
as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see that you are come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, whatever happens, what I want to be able to hear is that y'all are united as one, striving and struggling together for what work? For the faith of the gospel. That's what I want for you. And that's what God still wants for this church and all churches. The church universal is unity around the mission that he has given us. So I'm asking each of us, would you commit to the unity in this church? Would you commit to unity in this church around the mission and the work that God has for us? Each one of us needs to be willing to put aside preferences and unite together as one for the work that the Lord has for us. Let's let those commitments be the words that the Israelites said as they looked around each other that said, let's start rebuilding. Let's do it. Let's Get together for the work that God has for us. The third thing from Nehemiah 2 is this. The gracious hand of God gives us boldness against opposition. The gracious hand of God gives us boldness against opposition. Now we've already seen the hints of opposition starting, right? At the end of verse 10, there are these individuals that are listed. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite were not happy. They were greatly displeased, is what it says, because someone had come to pursue prosperity for the Israelites. And in all of this, the gracious hand of God was at work to give Nehemiah and to give the people a boldness against the opposition that they were going to face. So let's look at verse 19 and 20. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, What is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start, rebu- or will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So the opposition begins as mocking and despising them, but then turns to scare tactics. Hopefully, if they can terrify Nehemiah and the people, they'll stop the work. Because they ask the question, are you rebelling against the king? What's rebellion against the king going to get you? Death, right? At, at best, you're talking prison, but almost certainly in that day, Rebellion against the king, you're dead. And so they ask that question to, to instill fear in the heart of Nehemiah and in the heart of the people who have just united together and said, let's get to work for what God has for us. And maybe if they are afraid of the accusations, it seems like you're rebelling against the king, maybe they'll stop. And Nehemiah responds boldly. Nehemiah is not afraid of the opposition because he knows the gracious hand of God is on them to do the work. Nehemiah is not distracted by the opponents. 
See, we either will get oftentimes afraid when there's opposition. Of maybe, I did, maybe I don't need to do this. Or we might get distracted trying to justify and clarify. No, 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 that's not what I'm doing here. Wait, no, that's not what's happening here. Nehemiah doesn't justify himself to the opponents. He doesn't say, no, you don't understand. This isn't rebellion. Let me clarify to you what it is that I'm trying to accomplish. He doesn't waste his time trying to clarify to the opponents. He has boldness. Let me read that verse again, 20. I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. He boldly faces opposition He keeps clinging to the promise of who his God is, right? The God of the heavens is with us. And he is the one that is going to grant us success. He has given us a promise. And he's going to do the work that's needed. And so we're not worried about what you have to say. He has boldness because of who God is and because he's clinging to the promises of what God has for them. He didn't rattle with fear He didn't defend himself. He stayed committed to the work that the Lord had for him because the gracious hand of God was on him to face opposition. And we can be certain that if we are about the work of the Lord, there will be opposition. Scripture speaks to that over and over again, but Scripture also shows us over and over again that when there is opposition to the work of the Lord, that God grants His people boldness in the face of horrible circumstances. The book of Acts alone has story after story about that. In Acts, there's a story in Acts 3 where Peter and John are going up to the temple and they heal a lame man. And they go into the temple and then proclaim the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is available to him. And they are thrown in prison. And the next day they are brought before the court and asked, where did you get authority to do these things? They're trying to stop this. And we see boldness in their resolve to commit to the work that the Lord has for them. And so in Acts 4 and verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. There was a boldness about them. When asked, where did you get this authority? They don't, like, mince words. They don't try to hold back. Peter says, the Jesus that I'm talking about, who healed this man, the Jesus that you crucified, he's the one who gives us this authority. And he's the one that is the only savior of the world. He's the only hope that we have. They had boldness, and that's what the religious leaders saw in these men, a boldness. They had spent a night in prison. Prisons in the first century, not a pleasant place to be. No prison is, but certainly then, conditions were horrible. But they had boldness. Yes, they could have lost their life. They weren't worried about that. They were sticking to the work that the Lord had for them. 
So, if we commit to the work of the Lord, we can be certain there will be opposition. That may come sometimes from the inside. That may come from the outside. We can be certain that there will be spiritual opposition. Satan does not want us about the work of the Lord. Satan does not want us pursuing the work that the Lord has given us. Let's remember who God is and let's remember that He will grant us success. And so as we do that, let's just pray for boldness. That's what Peter and John and the rest of the disciples do after this event in Acts. They go back home and they say, God, give us more boldness to keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Right? So as, as we are about the work of the Lord, let's pray for boldness and trust that he is going to give us strength to face whatever opposition comes our way. The gracious hand of God will give us that. The Lord has work for us to do, Dogwood Church. Every single one of us. We're to spread the good news of the gospel. We're to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ and the love of God. We are to grow disciples here so that more people will be on mission to take the good news of the gospel to our community and to the ends of the earth. God has work for us to do, so let's commit to the work that he's given us, just as Nehemiah committed to the work that the Lord had for him. And as we commit to that, let's be sure that the gracious hand of God will be upon us for that task. Let's trust him to provide for whatever it is that's coming. Let's trust him and seek out unity that we need to be able to accomplish the, tr- the task. And let's trust him for boldness to pursue what it is that he desires for us. No matter what opposition we may face. And as we pursue those, let's do that for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We thank, thank you that you are still at work in us. Uh, and that you have given us a work to do, Lord, for others to hear the good news of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you will work to provide for everything that you have for us. We pray that you will unite us around the task. And we pray for boldness, Lord. That no matter what we face, that we can trust you and we can obey you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.